Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 382. Today is Sunday the 19th of July, 2020. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast. This week's interview is with Suki Fuller. Suki is a competitive strategic advisor, analytics storyteller, globetrotter, and acclaimed keynote speaker. With her eclectic career, having worked in intelligence, lived in China, Saudi Arabia, among other many countries, I wanted to delve into her career and her life. In this conversation with Suki, we look at the importance and opportunities of competitive intelligence in business, the transferable skills from the world of intelligence to the corporate world, and a whole lot more. You'll find all the show notes on metadial.com. Please consider to drop in your rating and review, and don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Suki Fuller, how lovely to have you on the show, my goodness. We, I, I looked on LinkedIn and it said we connected on, in 2016, so that must have been close to when we came across one another. We're both somewhat American, somewhat living in London, um, and you and I share many kind of foibles and, and um, let's call it in, in, in quoted marks, um, weirdnesses. Suki, um, I'll, of course, I w- I'd like to, you to describe yourself how you do that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for having me on your podcast, Mr. Minter Dial. My pleasure. Um, yeah, 2016. <laughs> and uh, I think I fangirled you. For, oh. for lack of a better phrase, girl, I'm not a girl, so I'm a woman. So I fan woman you. Fan woman Fan woman <laughs> you. Um, and uh, I believe that was at Like Minds. Yeah. And um, describe me. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I always tell people, Suki, I'm direct. I'm a tad bit too honest. <laughs> Um, and uh, what do I do? I mean, do you want to know what I do or how I describe sure. myself? There's, That's it. You can do, you can meld them both I'm, together. I'm I think sure. my personality and what I do is very much who I am. And it's not because of what I do. That's who I am. But I think it's more of who I am is what I do. As I, I sort of I love the it. career actually came about because I sort of had this realization of, who I was, even in the beginning of my life, I always had this incredible curiosity, somewhat insatiable curiosity. I was always asking why. I was always getting in trouble for asking why, because stop, yeah. stop asking why. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I would even be in class and asking the the word the. I wrote a whole essay on the word the when I was about six years old. I was like, why is it the? Who made up the? If you say it enough times and look at it enough times, it's the wrong word. (laughs) Maybe it should be the. (laughs) And I I was just always like that, though. And that curiosity is fed into my career path in intelligence. And it it comes about of asking the question of why. Why something occurred? Why has that person done it? Why has it happened at this time? You know, why did it happen in this way? But there was also a, an element of I wanted to be the person that could build the tools. So I always tell people I'm this combination of sort of 
Indiana Jones because I love history. I like looking at the historical aspects of something and James Bond because I always wanted to have, okay, I wanted to have the Aston Martin. <laughs> the other stuff I didn't care about. I wanted the cool gadgets, but I also wanted to be M because that's the person who gives the direction. And, but I also wanted to be Q, the person who makes the gadgets. And then there was this sort of element of her club, you know, Pyro. I just wanted to solve it. So it was this combination and amalgamation of all these different characters. And ironically, I never thought of them, the characters of what they actually look like. It's what they did. It's their mission. So I tell people, and this combination of all these characters was who I was. And when I was a kid, they used to call me Thesaurus Girl. Um, because I would just read a thesaurus. <laughs> I would read anything, right. I, anything. I used to read a dictionary. That was yeah. my, my uh, bad news. So Suki, you, you are um, nominally from Southwest London, and um, you, but you have moved around the world, and um, you lived in China, Saudi Arabia. Um, spooks and kooks might think that's a... Uh, so already a good fertile ground for more interesting things. So tell us how you've, you've explored the world and why you've landed in London again. So childhood-wise, my biological parents are, I guess you would consider them not really Windrush, but children of Windrush. And so my family mostly... <laughs> from Jamaica. We'll just go mostly because if we start siloing it out, it'll get complicated and that'll be like three years from now <laughs> if we really talk about the nitty gritty. But basically, majority from Jamaica. That's the preeminent gene pool. Sorry, yeah. And um, grew up here in, well, not grew up. Okay, so I was born in Southwest London. I was born in Ballum. Um, I'll say that because a lot of people now know that. I said it somewhere else before, so it's not a big secret anymore. I was born in Ballum. Um, first few years of my life, Southwest London, living around Tooting Beck. And my father is a very smart individual, and he's an engineer, um, electrical, mechanical, computer engineer. So he was recruited at a very young age, right out of school, to go to Saudi Arabia, work for the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and a couple other companies and all that good stuff. So it was a little back and forth when I was a child to Saudi Arabia and my mother was not happy living in Saudi Arabia. Um, even though it wasn't quite as restrictive as it is now, it became more restrictive as we were getting older. So my parents divorced, moved back here to London. My mother remarried. We moved to Belgium. <laughs> my stepfather's in the Air Force, U.S. Air Force was. And so we moved around Europe quite a bit, and then we moved to the U.S. And in the U.S., lived in a lot of states. <laughs> the first state I Presumably ever lived in a lot of was, air bases. Yeah. The first state I ever lived in was California. So I think that probably hones and forms a bit of my, my mentality, because having lived already a, a little bit more of a global life than more, most people, moving to California, everybody is more relaxed. And I don't know about that anymore, but true. I'd say, you know, attitudinally, people are more relaxed in California and you're able to exist 
especially if you're living in an Air Force base, so Vandenberg Air Force Base, Southern California, close to Pismo Beach. When we moved there, Pismo Beach was not on the map of surfing places in the world to go. Halama Beach definitely wasn't. It was a place where high school students went. And if you were lucky to know high school students and you were in middle school, you got to go there and hang out. It was no big deal. And it's really weird to see the change. Now it's like on the top five places in the world to surf. So, you know, moved around, eventually landed back in, well, not back, but landed in Pennsylvania, which is the home state of my stepfather. And I do have actual biological family <laughs> that That's are living in Pennsylvania. Something, as I said. Else, something yeah. else we share. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I went to school after that in, I didn't actually live in Pennsylvania at that time. <laughs> we went back to Pennsylvania. Then we came back to England and I went to RF Lakenheath um, where I graduated from high school at RF Lakenheath. I've just sort of concisely put in all the different schools I went to into just, yeah, got to sure. high school, RF Lakenheath, graduated high school. And then I went back to Pennsylvania started school in a joint program engineering and yeah i was just trying to basically one up my biological father <laughs> to chemical engineering and um pre-law um nice combination yeah it was sort of feeding into the logical side of my brain but also that qualitative aspect of my brain so it was like oh yeah i can do both and that was at penn state did not have a very good time at Penn State. Mm. That's a whole nother conversation. Sure. <laughs> and I feel like I've been talking forever. And then um, when I left Penn State, because I didn't quite enjoy it, um, went and found Mercyhurst University and discovered the intelligence program. And it was really weird because when I discovered it, going through catalogs of schools I wanted to go and transfer to and start out. And I came across and I was like, that's me, intelligence analyst. I was like, oh, it was like a dream come true. I was like, oh, this is it. This is what I've been searching for. That is me. And at the same time, I'd have all these different jobs working, you know, part-time here, part-time there while I was in school. And I knew that there was somewhere close to what I wanted to be. And I actually became an auditor in the May company at the time it was Kaufman's in Pennsylvania. And I became an auditor, an internal auditor. And I was like, okay, this works. Then I became a floor detective. So, and I was like, this is kind of what I wanted to do, but not quite. And then when I found the intelligence program, I was like, that's it. It's a combination of that, that, and the engineering. And it was like, all came together. Mm. Mercyhurst, best best thing I can definitely say that happened to me in my younger years was finding the program. So, you you get into the intelligence community, and um, of course you're you're gonna have to tell me what you can't tell me, kind of thing. But one of the funny ideas that I have is like you know a party at amongst intelligence party. Oh, so how how you doing? Fine. Who are you? Nobody. You know, they, they, how do you know what you're allowed to say? That's that's just a joke. But what what is more interesting for me is observing people who you go to a party of let's say normal people, 
and you, I'm sure you have a radar that says, huh, I bet he's one too. Is that, has that ever happened to you where you kind of just somehow intuitively know, but you can't obviously for real know or ask the question. So you, you work for the agency, you can't do that. So how, what, how does that grow for someone who's within? One of the first mentors I had outside of the academic institutions was a guy named Jan Herring. And he was one of the top analysts at the CIA when he was in the CIA. And he, when he left the CIA after a really great career, he actually founded Motorola's intelligence, competitive intelligence program. And then he became a consultant. He's, he's pretty much like the go-to, he was the go-to person. And he came up with the concept of key intelligence questions and key intelligence topics sort of based somewhat on things at the way that he did things in the CIA. When I first met him and I was on an internship while I was in school and he sort of became my sort of mentor at the time, I went and I sat with him and he looked at me and he says, have you ever been primary? And I said, no. He's like, you've never been a collector, a primary collector. And I said, no. And he says, you have a natural instinct because they sent me when I was, I can talk about that project. <laughs> so Mercyhurst University, we have a, a think tank arm and we work on projects for government organizations, private corporations, and you get to have real life experience working on projects as well as the practical. So you have the practical application of what you're learning in school about the theory, but you actually get to work on real life projects. And one of the first very major projects that Mercyhurst worked on for an organization that begins with N <laughs> was they sent us to um, a conference. They sent a couple people to different conferences. We were just basically doing projects about technology. And I got to go to this conference in Florida with a whole bunch of diplomatic, quote unquote, <laughs> people from consulates and whatever, and just to learn about technology. And while I'm at this event, I pretty much was able to figure out who the attaches, and we all know when they say an attache, diplomatic attache, it's usually somebody who works in the intelligence community. And before I'd even been introduced to people, I was pretty much basically able to figure out who those attaches were from all the different countries that were there. And this was focused on Latin America and just the relationships that they were having with um, Eastern European and Russian organizations and countries. I was able to figure it out. And as I was there, I was just there as a student. I wasn't there for any, I was there technically technically, as a student representative, just wanting to learn more. I was able to figure it out in about a few hours, just well, of meeting all those people. And when I was writing up my report in the brief, and I said, these are the people that I just, they, they were question marks, like, they don't fit specific roles, their backgrounds, their knowledge because you have a lot of people that are specialists in their specific area. And when you have someone who has a lot of general knowledge and not very much expertise, 
that's when the questions arise. Because, <laughs> like, you're not here as an expert, but you have a lot of knowledge about all these other subjects. Mm-hmm. So I know. <laughs> I feel like I need to um, borrow you to see meet a couple of my friends, and then afterwards we can debrief. Um, so, how many years in total did you work for the intelligence or in the intelligence community? How many years in total? <laughs> see those those. So sort of internal and external because you have companies, you have companies like um, Booz Allen or um, Northrop Grumman, you know, they're all consultancies. Technically, you are a consultant Mm -hmm. working for intelligence, right? (laughs) But you're really working for the intelligence community, but you're an employee of those companies. So that's, you can't really say how many how many years got it so for people who are listening obviously most of them you will not be someone who's worked in the intelligence community so you're like hmm what as what 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 can someone who's worked in the intelligence community do within a corporate in space and then the second part is what are the skills that the intelligence community brought to you the work you've done in intelligence that would be relevant outside of being an intelligence officer working on corporate spying or whatever it is that's by re- corporate <laughs> intelligence that that other individuals who are not necessarily in that space could get what are the transferable skills that you developed in your work as an intelligence person i'd say the first thing that you have to have you have to have curiosity if you're not a curious person, it's it's not going to work for you. Because right, that, that's in the tales digging. Right, right but explain to me how different that's curiosity. Because, oh, oh, there's something new there. I'll read that. And that sort of general curiosity. What I'm thinking is a little bit more like the, you know, the one that scratches, hmm, that's interesting. Hmm, that's even more interesting. And then there's, it's sort of like, it feels for me like it has to be a little bit more drilled curiosity to go down the seven whys as opposed to general curiosity. Oh, that's fascinating. Oh, I really like that. I really like everything. But it's, it's like um, when you go to a website and you're reading an article and there's a link in the article and some people will click on the link because they'll say, Oh, well, I want to know about that. But, and then they'll start reading that other article and they'll see another link and they'll click on that. When you're somebody in the intelligence community or at least what for me one of the things is that i will read all of those tabs a lot of people will open them and just scan they won't i will open every single link in an article in order to know exactly how that person came about writing that article what what fed into that information that they then decided was important to put in the article and then to link it. I will read all of them. It's a it's a good habit and it's a bad habit because <laughs> you can get into a little bit too much of an analysis paralysis, as we say. Is it is this something that you could possibly train AI to do? Do you think that kind of mindset that you're talking about? It's one of those areas that a lot of companies that are working on sort of intelligence, competitive intelligence tools. It's it's how to get information. But the thing that within 
the intelligence world, especially if you're looking at competitive intelligence, which is technically what I do now, is a matter of knowing which parts, you can always figure out which parts are absolutely important. There's always facts, but it's really the sort of the intangible pieces like the narrative come, or yeah the, the the story the bias that comes with an issue that is the part that can't be trained by ai which is why everybody's always saying ais are going to replace everybody i'm like it can only replace so much because there is a certain amount of analysis that somebody has right now say with covid like who's going to break the rules when it comes down to the lockdown you could pretty much basically predict the Deviant. people that yeah the people that would not break the rules but it was the people that potentially could break the rules were the ones you weren't too sure about there are people yes they're gonna break the rules criminals they will break the rules okay we have that percentage of the population then there are the people that are so law-abiding they wouldn't even open their front door to sneeze you know <laughs> yeah okay then you have sort of that middle ground where it's like mm, there's potential but then there's that middle ground that skews towards there's the potential but they are very much unknown and the, those are the people when you're looking in the intelligence world that no ai will be able to predict you know you, you can look at their habits online you can look at somebody and go i think that that person will be the person to break the lockdown just because of what they're reading, where they've gone before, who they're hanging out with. And it could just be that there's a circumstance, a human circumstance, an element you are not aware of that is not anywhere for you to see that they don't break the lockdown. So if I'm, if I'm in the intelligence community, I'm trying to track terrorists in a country and I'm using all these different tools, so facial recognition, um, scanning what's going on on social media, what you're posting. The fact is that most social media, supposedly anyway, is behind in some kind of wall, encrypted WhatsApps um, or encrypted Facebook Messenger or your, what you're writing on your own personal Facebook page, assuming you know how to turn off you know, the right privacy um, notifications. But uh, do, you, do you believe, uh, well, first of all, can that be hidden? And second of all, is there enough material anyway out there in order to identify those sort of middling, less well-declared uh, hardcore people? Whether you know, Terrorists, I take that because that's sort of uh, a regular topic, but otherwise. It's really funny because as much as I love technology, and I am pretty much by my maybe my baseline of personality more optimistic but as i've gotten older i'm more pragmatic definitely <laughs> and that's also might just come from the career is is you know knowing for everything that somebody builds that is for good meant for good there's always going to be someone who's going to go oh i can do this with it because it'll make more money yeah it's bad but hey i'll make more money and that's usually the driving force, unfortunately. As for tracking of criminals, I always tell people, oh, 
you're going to get me started, Minta. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> as, as you've seen with the presentation that I've done about connected data, is that there is so much information out there about people, you can form a pretty wholesome picture of somebody's life and the choices that they are likely uh, to make. And then there's the highly like, you know, highly likely that this person is going to cross the street because of how they normally cross the street. You know, they are willing to take this shortcut to their house. So in order to take that shortcut, they're going to cross the street, not at the stoplight. They're going to cross the street directly from that alley that they want to take to cross the park and not walk down, you know, the extra 20, 30 feet to the stoplight and then have to walk that 20, 30 feet. Once they cross, go back to, to that alley. They're just going to cross the street. And those are just those pieces of information that get fed in. But because that's at, they're tracking your, yeah. your mobile moves, yeah. movements. It's just, it's just um, the information that is out there about your average person right now. I always tell people there's no way a child today is going to be off the grid. Even if a child is born to parents that are in some place in the middle of a field, that child will never be off the grid. It's impossible because those parents are on the grid so something like a whatsapp that tells no, me no 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 whatsapp is not i don't care what they say end-to-end -end encryption once you are owned by an entity like facebook you are not secure that's just it's i'm constantly amazed that people say oh i'm using whatsapp it's secure and i'm going you're using whatsapp you're not on facebook but you're using instagram all three of those are owned by the same company done deal uh, all right so the <laughs> the level of insecurity is related to facebook's ability to see that or the ability for the government to say i'd like to have access to your data mr facebook or mr zuckerberg per se well facebook mm. <laughs> <laughs> we won't even talk about the board members because <laughs> that all comes back to the circular who is on the board of Facebook and what government contracts they own. So technically you, they're going to have access to Facebook. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. well, it's, it's not, it's not as bad as WeChat in terms of. Uh, there's a difference though. As I always tell people when they say, Oh, you lived in China, you know, the difference is with China, especially if you're not from China, you have a knowledge and you have an expectancy when you live in that environment, you know, um, it's just, it, it's blatant. It is the way that they life tell is. you it is almost the, basically. Yeah. You will have this level of surveillance in your life. A hundred percent. Whereas in Western democracies, quote unquote, you're not expecting that level of intrusion. You're expecting a level of freedom. And it's a perceived freedom and it's sort of underlying current of, mm. of yes, intrusion. Sir. And when you have companies like Facebook, when, when they're born and you have companies, pretty much every major technology company in the U.S., especially in the U.S., actually came about and was developed with money from organizations in national security. 
um, you know, you have QTEL, you have all of those companies that are technically government funded think tanks. And that's how a lot of those tech companies, they may have started out with their money, you know, seed or whatever from friends and family. But as they grew bigger, one of the places that technology is always getting funding from are government organizations because they just had the most money. They still do, but that's just the way it always happened. And then it had occurred. So there was always an element of, yeah, you know what, we'll give you all this money, but we want to have some of this for ourselves too. So they might be building something separately for the government, but it is basically the same of what they built for the public. And, and a lot of people really want to ignore that. All right, another area, Suki, cybersecurity. So mm -hmm. the, 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 the language I tend to use is that the weakest link is where you're most vulnerable and the weakest link tends to be a human person with a USB key kind of thing. Is, is that still a fact or would you say, no, 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 you got it wrong, mentor? It's not really, I wouldn't say it's somebody with a USB key. It's actually just the person. Right, with the ability to click on a, on a spammable link or you know, a malware link and so on. It's even before that. It's actually down to the person and the formulation of their life, their life, their circumstances their mindset before they even have the power to do that. Because depending on one, how you've grown up, how you view other people in the world, that's going to have an effect of what you do when you go and you're in that environment where there's a level of trust and integrity that you're supposed to have. Um, you know, if you look at a room for every 10 people in a room, one is supposedly statistically a criminal. So for a, a company, especially a company in cybersecurity, there's going to be somebody who is going to be that bad person, maybe not on the same level as, you know, sitting in a, I don't know, <laughs> a mafia involved nightclub, but still there's going to be that person. It's just the, the grade of criminal. Well, there's the, there's the unhappy employee, yeah. there's the deviant employee, employee, and then there's the one who's just gormless. Yeah. <laughs> you just, you have those, you know, that mixture of people, personality types, and it's really, sometimes it's not even the person that's the deviant is the one that's going to, you know, screw it all up. Sometimes it may be that they're thinking about it, they want to do it, but it just could be that clueless person that says, oh, well, you know, this isn't that bad. I can take a look at this. You know, it looks yeah, talking harmless. Talking about clicking on links. Click. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> looks harmless enough. It was sent to me from, you know, I recognize that person's email address. Yeah, I click on that. And so, it is the weakest link for, I mean, if you look at the way that AI is being developed, we have one population group that seems to be doing the majority of the development the majority of the advancement of that is not taking into effect or regard for the whole of the world. So you have, I always take the example of Google Glass. It's like for somebody who has an eye disorder and I have an eye disorder, I thought, oh my gosh, this is great. You know, it's going to be helping me to, to see things on my glasses instead of on a computer screen would definitely help because distance sucks for me. And no, they made it into a fashion item and technically a bro, bro tool. 
and that's why it never really took off. Um, if they had started out as a as a medical device, it probably would have gotten more acceptance from the general population because it would be seen as a a medical advancement. And then everybody else would have said, "Well, hey, it's a medical advancement, hey, but I can get really cool glasses." Yeah, you know what? I can get my glasses, regular glasses, done that way. It's really cool. Mm-hmm. It would have been accepted, but they didn't. And now they've come back around to that. And now they're trying to reintroduce it as a medical device. And I would say the fastest way for any intrusive technology to come into the general population is through medical devices. Oh, wow. Ouch. Um, I still want to shout out for Blindspot, this startup, well, startup a company that began in Singapore about five years ago, which is a connected walking stick for blind people. And uh, it was a, a absolutely brilliant initiative. You, there are two other things that you do. Um, well, th- you're many things, uh, so could you be exact, but I did want to ask, what does it mean? And you were inducted in, in October last year to be a fellow at the Council of Competitive Intelligence. Wow. Congratulations for that. Thank you. I'm going to own that. <laughs> you should. I always feel a little, it's, I don't know why. I think there's part of my personality that's still very much as a child and an introvert and being in intelligence, you're sort of a support person. You're not out in front. Mm -hmm. Even when you are doing something that's deemed out in front, you're not really out in front. Your way is to support the decision maker. So it feels really weird being on that council. There's only 90... (laughs) Yeah, it's, 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 it's you know, 96, 90, 96, and um, um, 96 people. So basically, it's people that work within the field of competitive intelligence. Um, a lot of them, um, Jan Herring, he's one of the founding members of that. There are people that might have been formerly in national security, law enforcement, but they have in some way, shape or form ended up working in the sort of the corporate environment, um, helping just organizations around the world, companies around the world. And um, yeah, so I was uh, nominated and seconded or whatever, whatever, thirded, fourth, and um, I was invited to be a member and it feels it feels really weird because these are some of these people are people like Jan, people that wrote the textbooks that I learned from. So it's really weird to to sit on this council and to be having conversations with people that I look up to, that I admire, and you know, the founder of my university program is on the council. And granted, over the years, I have considered him a, sort of a mentor and a friend. And the textbooks that I was taught from, there is a woman in Australia, Babette Ben Newson, and her and this guy, Craig Fleischer, they wrote the majority of the textbooks that are teaching you about competitive intelligence. And to be on the council with them, it's like, okay. And I haven't even written a book yet. <laughs> 
coming soon. Which is really bad. <laughs> People have been harking on me for that for years. That's for sure. So Suki, um, whether it's uh, about the 50-50 pledge or your own work, uh, how can people uh, find out more about you, um, track you down, Suki? Remarkably, I'm pretty easy to find, um, especially actually uh, the last few years of living back here in Europe, amazingly enough. Um, Fuller, Suki Fuller at Twitter, Instagram, not on Facebook. Facebook is my actually my private place. Um, sure. You're on it, just, though. You're on yeah, it. Just I'm on not it. for everybody. Exactly. And Unless you're Facebook. I'm not really on it for. I'm very structured about what I place. <laughs> so I LinkedIn, that. Suki Fuller, everything is just basically my name. Um, my website, which really needs updating, sukifu.com. And the 50-50 pledge is um, sort of a, an initiative. I started with a friend of mine who's a VC, um, Chris Tottenham from Notion. And that was to get more women into VC and not just you know, female founders. A lot of people have initiatives for female founders. Our initiative was to get more women into investing positions in VC. Um, because if you look, a lot of VC funds, they'll have females, they'll have women, but they are basically either in support positions, they might be marketing officers, but they're not in investment partner positions. And so that's what we really started out with doing that initiative, which actually then got born of included i'm not sure if you've seen included and that's a program where they're having people from underrepresented parts of society learn how to do investment and learn how to be vcs fabulous yeah that's an initiative that when we started out we're like okay yeah we go and talk to vcs about having more women their eyes will glaze over and even when you interject into a conversation about you know, women of color, their eyes would really glaze over and they'd say, oh, we're doing that. And it's like, no, you're not. And then got 10 funds, including Notion, spearheading it to start Included and now Included as a fellowship program that's been around one year now. Um, and the next uh, cohort is coming up and 50-50 pledge. We're sort of in the background, still speaking to funds which is really, really ironic now. Everybody's trying to throw money at female founders and especially women of color. And it's like, no doubt. It's like, yeah, we, we appreciate your VC fund doing that. How about you have some partners because you're not going to change your mentality till people are sitting at the table with you making those decisions instead of just throwing money at companies. Suki, you're a Liverpool fan? I am. So, I am. So am I. <laughs> Go Did red. you? Uh, the match yeah. last night oh, was, dear. Oh, it was uh, so disappointing. Yeah, no doubt. It was, every level. But you know what? It, they've had this amount of time. Yeah. And as much as I've been watching, you know, the Instagram videos with everybody and showing their training, you know, that they're doing individually, it's not the same level 
when you're at home doing things and yeah, when you actually get out there and you're playing. So I'm rusty, just like, rusty. Hey, yeah, I'm just like, come on, fellas, bring it home. Mm. <laughs> just a little bit bring more love, a little bit more love. <laughs> Suki, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Lovely to have you. Um, always a pleasure to hear your energy and your fun stories and look forward to hanging out and um, doing some more talking maybe offline next time. Indeed. Thank you very much, Minta, for having me. And hopefully people will think I was interesting. (laughs) You are, Suki. Let me say it. (laughs) Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on minterdial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
Welcome, change agents, to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary, yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts.